0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, you're listening to the New Books Network in Anthropology. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Yadong Li, a PhD student in Anthropology at Tulane University. Skin might be the most visible organ of our human being. However, skin might also be the most invisible one because it is so familiar to us that it's very easy for us to forget skin has its memory and history. If we treat the skin seriously and read it ethnographically, it's even possible for us to touch the history of colonialism, consumption, race, and aesthetics through engaging with this connective tissue. The book we will discuss today is a book about skin, about how can cultural scholars learn more about history, haunting, and cross-national connections through a focus on skin. I'm very happy to talk with the author of the book, Professor Tui Lei Tu, So welcome to New Books in Anthropology, Professor Tu.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us. The new book, Experiments in Skin, Race and Beauty in the Shadows of Vietnam, is published by Duke University Press in 2021, and it is the winner of R.R. Hawkins Award in 2022. Professor Tu is professor in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University she's also the author of The Beauty*, Gen- the Beautiful Generation, Asian Americans and the Cultural Economy of Fashion, also published by Duke Press in 2011. Uh, so Professor Tu, I can't wait to chat about your fabulous book. But before we start our conversation, I think it would be helpful for our audience to know more about you as the author of the book. So could you please introduce yourself to your audience briefly?
0: Well, um, I think you've done an excellent job of introducing me to the audience. I'm Tween Lin Tu. I teach in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU. Um, and my degree is in American Studies. And I started out uh, my work more or less as an Americanist and uh, a person working in ethnic and American studies, particularly Asian American studies. And in my second book, I've sort of made the move uh, towards actually field work in Asia. And so that was a really exciting uh, venture for me in this project. And I know we're going to talk a lot more about it. But so I think of my work now is a very sort of transpacifically located, um, and um, I'm excited to chat with you about
1: the book. Fantastic. And so basically, let's start talk about the content of the books. I found it a little bit difficult for me to give a comprehensive summary of the book, because you so skillfully with extensive information, analytic perspectives and various topics and actors um, through the focus on the skin in this book. So I'm very curious about, as the author of the book, what do you think this book is about and what do you want to express or achieve through the book?
0: I think, you know, one of the exciting things about this book for me since it's come out is that I think people have taken different things from the book, depending on where uh, they're situated when they're reading it. Anthropologists take something different from the book that, say, Americanists take and, you know, people who work in cultural studies or visual studies or race studies take something a little bit different from it. Um, and so i don't want to foreclose any of that you know i think when i was um writing the book i was really trying to think about this question of embodied memory right about how we sort of carry our histories in our bodies um uh, both on the kind of surface uh, level and something deeper right and i i honed in on skin because it is this sort of phenomenally um Uh, you know, fluid sort of organ of our body. It's, you know, it's a barrier, but it's also an invitation in, right? It's how we construct who we are as an individual, but it's also a meeting place with others, uh, right? Um, And, you know, that expression skin deep is so um important to me because I really wanted to understand like how deep is skin, right? Um as a way of understanding how deep is the histories that we carry even in the contemporary moment.
1: Fascinating. I think it's mm-hmm. it 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 accurately describes what you want to achieve through this book and also about what is this book about. So basically you have mentioned to us you are from a American studies program and your previous academic work like your first book The Beautiful Generation basically focuses more on Asian American and but in this book you go to you went to Vietnam to do field work and also you connect to Vietnam and also, scientific experiments in the in, in the u.s so basically it's a transnational story so what prompted you to make this move from america to vietnam to build this transnational trans um you know trans state connection and what prompted you to you know what prompted you to realize that the skin in the subject was further examination Right, right.
0: You know, I wish I could tell you that I had it all planned out uh, when I did this work, that I, you know, knew like I was going to intentionally, you know, do a transnational project that focused on skin. And I'm afraid that wasn't the case at all. And in fact, when I began this project, and I say this in the introduction of the book, I was sort of following the stories of my last book, which was to think about how the US is really very much constructed visually, culturally by its connections to Asia, right? Um, Asian markets, Asian aesthetics, et cetera, in a way that it doesn't fully avow, right? And I wanted to visit some of these sort of like transnational sites. And I think, you know, it was a little bit strategic for me to go to Vietnam because I have language skills, you know, as an anthropologist, you know what it means to do field work without language skills. Um, So, you know, originally I had gone there to think about their sort of consumption practices as, you know, a kind of way of understanding a post-socialist Vietnam, the way that it engaged with, you know, global consumer goods, particularly the lux- luxury markets. Um, and, you know, I got there and the story didn't end up being the story that I thought I wanted to tell, you know, and I started meeting these people. I was interviewing people from like El Vietnam and these like, you know, sort of like upper class, sort of very cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan Vietnamese who were consuming these luxury goods. But They were a very, 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 very small part of the population. And because I have family networks in Vietnam, I was connected to a much larger part of the population who were consuming in a very different way. And it was they who led me to thinking about skin and the ways in which, you know, I say in the book, that i was led to the spa where i did my field work through a family friend who i'd known really my whole life Um, and it was those connections that led me to a kind of a bigger story about what it means um, to consume at a much bigger level right and i say in the book i became interested less in their consumption than what was consuming them right (laughs) what they were really really interested in through these consumption practices
1: is a super interesting fieldwork story. And uh, so from my perspective, it's very anthropological because it's full of serendipity. And as you say, we will never know what finally we will look at and what we will write about when we enter the field. So it's fascinating. So let's talk about the book itself. So it's pretty clear to me that experiments in skin draws on Resources and scholarships from different disciplines. I can see you collect materials through, as you mentioned, ethnographic fieldwork, and you also present a complex transnational history based on archival and historical research. And you also do your analysis drawing on literature from cultural studies, sociology, and um, other discipline like philosophy. So, do you consciously blur disciplinary boundaries while doing this project, or? And also, is it a challenge for you or it is pretty natural to do so?
0: Well, I would say because I'm trained in an inter- interdisciplinary field and I teach in an inter- interdisciplinary field, it's sort of my habit of mind. But to be completely honest, I think the reason I turned to the archival is, you know, I've said elsewhere that I felt like, once I learned what it was I really wanted to talk about or write about in my ethnographic work, I also felt like I met the limits of ethnography, that I would not be able to tell the story that I wanted to tell only by focusing in the contemporary, only in focusing in the local, that I actually needed to return and think about the kind of historical context of the U.S. war with Vietnam. And that was when I really returned to the archive and I dug up, you know, I I I talk about those these guys were my ghosts right as the women i met were talking about the ghosts that were haunting them these guys you know these sort of scientists working in the uh during the war um during the vietnam war era were really the ghosts that were haunting me haunting my work and haunting these women in ways that they they couldn't fully access right um and so you know i turned to the archival because that was where i really felt i needed to go to learn what i needed to Learn. And so part of it is like I have a kind of habit of mind of interdisciplinarity, but also because I could not answer the questions I needed to answer without a multidisciplinary approach. And I do think it's hard. um, And I do think, you know, for me, writing this book was very difficult because it did move through these different spaces and require these skills that I had to develop over time. It was also difficult because it told a history that was very very painful to me and you know and for me to be able to really convey to the reader the complexities of what this pain was, right? And it wasn't just about like war is bad or people are suffering. I didn't want that narrative, right? I didn't want to tell a story of like people living in toxic landscapes and they were, you know, um, I wanted to really understand how history was still haunting us in ways that were both sort of about our losses but also about our potential about the ways that it shapes the ways that we think about the future, right? And I think those were the things that were really hard for me, being able to hold all these stories together and be able to do justice to what I thought um, people were trying to convey to me, both through the archive and through the ethnographic materials.
1: Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. And of course, if you want to discuss something about haunting and ghost, basically, you cannot make it without mentioning uh, history and archive, because I think as uh, Derrida told us, ontology is basically something about temporality is about how temporal is not linear. It's basically very chaotic. The past has never passed, but still exists at present in the present and also uh, function to function to influence our behavior and actions. Thus, our our action will impact our future. So basically, haunting can be a very complex temporal issue. So I fully agree with you. And basically, we cannot discuss it without talking about archive. And this is what we will do in our next question. So you begin the book with a vivid description of a strange archive. So this archive is very special because it is an archive for dermatology, which is not very, you know, ure in... Uh, you know, social science research. So that is to say, this archive documents the pathology of skin in order to study skin disease in the Vietnam War. So I think the introductory chapter of your book extremely impressive for me because it's so beautifully written and skillfully designed. Can you tell us why you put this archive as the beginning of the book, what do you want to express through this archive?
0: Yeah. You know, I think the way that you put it um, that about ontology and about the non-linearness of time, I think is also about the non-linearness of research, right? Uh, and the non-linearness of producing a book. When I started thinking about skin, I found this book called Skin Diseases in Vietnam, which was produced by the US Military Medical Corps. And I found it very, very strange that such a book would exist, right? Like, Why do we have a whole book on skin you know, in Vietnam? But I actually didn't know what to do with it. I just sort of had it next to me. I didn't know what to do with that book. I thought it is important somehow, but I didn't know how. And when I returned to the archives, I, you know, I started just thinking about like, oh, you know, what was what was going on with dermatology during this period? And I went to the National Archives and I found there was a massive amount of stuff Right, and in fact, I found like it was massive because that was the medical condition that they were most concerned with, right? Which I think is surprising to many of us because we imagine, you know, many other things, right? Um, bacterial infections, right? Like many other things in war, but actually, this was the cause of the most man days lost. This is why we were helicoptering people out of the field, and I found that really, really surprising. Um, and you know, and it began there. And once I went into the archive, I realized those people who were in the archives were the people who produced this book. So there was, I found all these connections in the archive. They were reading each other. And they, I reconstructed a kind of community of scientists who were really engaged in these issues and who were, as a result, engaged in an issue in a historical moment in the US, right? Where we're at war, right, with a kind of an Asian nation, but we're also in an emergent civil rights movement. Right. So they were managing these ideas about like racial difference and national difference, you know, in their work in a way that didn't feel self-conscious to them. Meaning that, you know, it was like, you know, the way they talked about race was just so sort of naked and, you know, um, not in the kind of post-civil rights way of 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 being very sort of like, um you know, respectful to differences, for instance, that 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 language and that framework hadn't really emerged yet. And so I thought it was a really, really fascinating archive. And, you know, and to be able to tell the story of race and ethnicity and nation through an archive of feats, I thought was like, Wow, <laughs> um, what an amazing collection that I have access to. Um, I found it really, really um, inspiring. But you know, as I also said, really painful. You know, because I think in a moment where scientists are talking about like how to weaponize, you know, disease to kill the Vietnamese, how to like really like in the Foucauldian sense, how to let die. Um, you know, I I think was really, really difficult to read as well as eye-opening to read.
1: Definitely. And I think it's so amazing to see, it's so amazing to realize how you achieve through all this archive, because we think about archive, it is the most boring object, as product of bureaucratic system, but you use all this archive to add ethnographic texture to your book so it's just an amazing achievement and if i think about it why can you achieve it it, it is because you focus on skin because we all have skin and a skin is the one of the most central thing in our body. Basically, when reading all this picture and all this textual description, we can feel this pain, we can feel all this emotion about the protagonist of all this archive. So this is what I'm feeling about when I read your book. So let's talk about skin. So as you book, is basically a book about the skin. So could you please tell us when and how did skin become an object of the gaze of Western science?
0: Um, You know, I think one of the most interesting things I learned as I was doing this research is that skin actually became an organ that was subjected to the gaze of science very late in the history of medicine, right, Um, which is in some ways really strange because skin is like our most visible organ, and in fact, you know, the history of medicine um, used skin a lot as a kind of diagnostic, right? You would look at someone's skin to really try to diagnose what was going on underneath. But to think of skin as an organ itself, right? And to dedicate a field of a medical inquiry to, to skin is a very, very uh, rather late phenomenon and rather late, especially in the US, right? So like we didn't have dermatology schools. We didn't have a field of medicine called dermatology until really late in the early... 20th century and in the U.S. we got a lot of that knowledge from European contacts right particularly France right was and um especially France after World War II um you know when essentially um you know the Nazis killed off all the dermatologists in 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 Germany right um And for in the U.S., you know, where we got a lot of that medical knowledge about skin was through sort of uh, the military, military medicine. Um, You know, this is like where, you know, all the U.S. incursions into Pacific, in the colonial sites, true as well of Europe, right, is where we develop knowledge about skin, right? Um, And so, you know, one of the interesting things about skin in the history of dermatology is like it really emerges very, very, very late even though it is our biggest and most visible organ it never really cohered as a, as a, as an organ um uh on its own until much much later and so that in itself was really interesting to me because one of the ways that it be emerged right and i say in the book you know i'm interested not not in so much of what skin is, but how it becomes, right? How it becomes a site for understanding race, for instance, how it becomes a site for understanding difference, for understanding all of these things, right? Um, I think I say in the book, something it's like, a, it's, it's sort of a, a record of the drama of race making for me. Um, and so, you know, and I think scientists had a lot to do with this, right? And it's a relatively unexplored part of how we think about the history of racial science, for instance, right? Um, you know, and I think in the archives, I, one of the interesting things I found is like, you know, these dermatologists had to really reconcile with this idea that they kept on wanting to say that Black skin was like super strong and like was resisting to pain and, you know, was this renewable resource and that, you know, they couldn't feel harm, they couldn't feel pain. Pain, right. Because they have this tough skin and to have to reconcile it with the fact that like the rate of black mortality, for instance, in the U.S. was so, so high comparatively. Right. And so the fields of dermatology became one of the ways in which science could reproduce racial ideas, right? Even as other fields, right, of science were generating counter narratives, right? And one of the things I say in the book is like, you know, we're sitting square in the middle of the 1960s, where there's so many challenges to ideas of race and science, right? Coming from all over the world, right? You know, what historians are calling the global 1960s. There's protests all over the world, right? In Mexico City, in Paris, right? And, you know, um, and a lot of it cohering around the kind of injustice of the Vietnam War, right? And this is a moment where people are really challenging ideas about race and about, like, colonialism, all of this, right? And in my work, I found this is also the moment where scientists are having to recuperate those ideas, even as they're being challenged, right? So, you know, the field of dermatology really emerges, in part, to sustain the kind of fiction of race, right? You know, part of the work they do is really just to always reassure us that race is still happening here. There's still race, right? Um, even as at the social and political level, we're challenging those notions.
1: Fascinating. I think if we read the book from this perspective, we can think about your book adds an effort of trying to present us how skin is continuously constructed as related to race distinction and also about history. So it's a very complex issue, participated by multiple actors from multiple fields, from science, from academia, from you know military, and also from industry. So let's talk about some of the most important figures in this very complex history. The first one, if I had to pick up one figure in the book and the complex history of um, the construction of skin, I might choose Albert Klickman. So could you please, as our audience may not be very familiar about uh, to dermatology and also about this field, so could you please briefly tell our audience who he was and what he did about skin?
0: So Albert Klickman um, is considered one of the founding fathers of American dermatology. As I said, you you know, he's working in the 1950s, um, is really when he he did a lot of the work. Um, and, you know, this is just the moment where we are still developing the field of dermatology in the US. And he's really the person who says, it's actually a, sci- a field of scientific inquiry. So before that, there was something about, you know, a lot of like knowledge we have about skin came from like cosmeticians, you know, if, if people had pimples, they would go to their, you know, local, cosmetic counters and there was a lot of knowledge um, that was being um, sort of circulated by women in those spaces, right? In the 1950s, around Kligman's work, he's really making the assertion that actually it's a field of science. and It is a field of experimental science. And he's going to do a lot of experimentation to actually reveal to us knowledge about skin. And, you know, he develops this. He teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, which is still a very prominent uh, dermatology school and a very well-resourced dermatology school. And nearby is the Holmesburg prison, right, where he sets up his lab, right, to do these kinds of experimentation. And he was originally called into the prison to deal with, um, you know, like various um, foot Fungus, um, that you know the incarcerated population we're experiencing, and he comes in and he realizes, like, oh wow, this is a captive population. This is like a massive, massive human subject pool. And he actually sets up a lab in the prison um, and he he funds it through various contracts with the military, various contracts with uh, people like Johnson and Johnson, like other um, cosmos what would become cosmoceutical companies. So he's testing things like soap and toothpaste. And he's also testing things like TCDD. Right. Um more popularly known as Agent Orange for chemical companies like Dow Chemicals, right? Um, And this is really a lot of what we know about skin we know from this guy, right? It's particularly about race and skin. So, you know, the Kligman method is still the sort of like, you know, standard treatment for certain kinds of condition. And of course, he famously discovers Retin-A, Right, which is the sort of, um, it was an anti-acne agent that he also realized was also an, and became an anti-aging agent, right? Because it forces cells to turn over quickly. It's still the gold standard. Like you open magazines, you go to dermatologists, like retinols, retin-A, like all of that is still the gold standard, right? For cosmetic treatments of skin. Um, his fingerprints are really Everywhere, everywhere, right? So, you know, it was important for me to understand this guy who's sitting in Pennsylvania and who's doing experiments on incarcerated populations and to be able to trace out his work and its impact and how it travels, his ideas get picked up by, uh, Salzburgers and other people who are working in military science. You know, I found in the archives, like actual papers of his in other, right. Military scientists, you know, archives, like they're reading each other, they have funded him. Right. So his work is so, so crucially important. And, um, The author, um, uh, uh, Alan Hornblum, wrote a book called Acres of Skin, which was really about the experimentations inside the prison. But he doesn't take it, follow the tracks, right, to what happens to those experiments as they travel to Vietnam, as they enter military science, and right? And I try to think about, like, the impact of this over time, the ways that we think about skin in Iraq, right, in Afghanistan, right? These are still live issues, right? Um, And so, you know, for me, he's like, his fingers are everywhere. And, you know, and we really still remember him as like a kind of a prominent scientist, right? Yes, you know, he was sued eventually for his work in, 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 the, um, in the prison, but he never gets censured or anything. And he lives on as this kind of like, um, you know, sterling figure right? Um, there's a moment in the book where I say in his obituary in, in the New York Times, they, they say, well, he always had perfect skin. And to me, that's a metaphor for the ways in which he's, his legacy still remains unblemished, right? Um, and yet his hands were so violently everywhere.
1: It's so fascinating because I think your writing is so skillful, because you particularly choose this very important figure. And to use his experience, his story, to show this connection between dermatology, the US Army, and the cosmetics industry, because this, you know, very complicated figure. And also, you show us how this scientist, his experiments, still has is all these um, legacies of um, about the skin to today's world. So it's a very complex, but a very important figure in the history of skin of and um, also about dermatology to facilitate us to think about how our understanding of skin is actually socially constructed through scientist through you know um businessmen and also through the military and besides albert klickman another important dermatology to reveal this connection among academia military and the beauty industry is marian swinsburg so who was him and what did he do and particularly what is the connection between Marion swinsburg and albert klickman so Marion Sulzberger was
0: the, Salzberg was the founder of the military dermatology research program. And he was a dermatologist, also a really, really important figure. And he actually taught here at NYU, uh, where I teach. And, um, and so his, you know, his, his fingerprints are still, like, I'm still teaching in the classrooms where he taught, right? Um, and, and, uh he was really an important figure in the field as well but he was the one who started the military dermatology research program to try to address these kinds of issues of skin diseases in vietnam and um he so he funded a lot of albert kligman's work right um and he was a reader of albert kligman's work and you know he he was the one who sent out the team to vietnam to do the research on vietnam um so he was the military and of this right but these two men right um were very very sort of connected and I connected very visibly in the archives for me right um and though they never they don't get spoken of together right um they really really are visibly together in the archives
1: so what I think is interesting is you Position the story of uh, Swinsberger um after the story of Albert Kligman. so because the connection between Swinsberger and Vietnam War is more is clearer than You know um, Albert Clickman. So now we can see the story of skin is also a transnational story. Rather, than it's not merely a story between different fields like academia, science, academia, uh, industry, and military, but also a transnational story from the US to Vietnam, from the Vietnam to the US. So. Here, I think it's appropriate to introduce your fieldwork in Vietnam. So, besides hysterical and archival research, you also did ethnographic fieldwork to offer us a description with more textures and also to show us how the past is alive in the present, uh, both in Vietnam and in the US. So, where is the Kelex Spa and what is this place like? And why do you choose this place as your primary field site?
0: As I mentioned earlier, you know, I was led there by this friend of mine and I, that's when my sort of research entirely changed. She was working there and I came with her one day and, you know, sort of was very much um, interested in like what was going on in the spa, right? In the sense that when i When I arrived there, I realized this was the true space of consumption, right? You know, I thought I was going to go visit malls and like, you know, where people bought cosmetic products, but actually they, that really wasn't where it was happening, where I saw people talking about skin and where I saw people using, you know, these kinds of scientific um sort of cosmeceuticals that were imported from the US, right, including things like retinol and retin-A that directly came from Albert Klingman and directly came from things like Johnson & Johnson, right? Um, it became really a fascinating sight to me. And it became a fascinating sight to me too, because it was really was this place where women were working on women. And women were actually, it was a very sort of female-centered space um, that I thought was a space of beauty, but really it was also a space of healing and medicine and care in a way that I sort of didn't recognize from the outside. I thought people were just going there to get facials, which they were, right? But actually, once I spent time there, I actually realized this is where conversations were happening, right? About you know, people trying to understand, um, interpret, take care of, um, and heal what was happening in their bodies um, in ways that was really surprising to me. Um, And I say in the book, you know, dermatology does exist in Vietnam, but not in the way that we we think of it here, right? So dermatologists are not very common, they're very expensive, and they're really, you know, dealing with, um, you know, fairly acute diseases. It's not like where I live in New York, where anytime anyone gets a bump, they're going to a dermatologist, right? Um, It's, you know, it's a very sort of different way of thinking about it. Um, But here in these spaces was where women were actually working together um, to sort of try to interpret what was happening to them and to try to offer ways of understanding um, what was happening to their body and how to
1: care for each other. Fascinating. And here, what is important is the element of gender is brought into the story. So could you please tell us who are the customers of Keelix and basically why do they come here seeking bodywork for their skin and how to understand their consumption practices in the context of a post-war, post-reform Vietnam?
0: Yes. So, you know, the the women who are coming to Keelix are women who are working women mostly, right? And they're working in these kinds of industries that, you know, are really producing a lot of, um, a, a lot of strain on their bodies. So, you know, they're working in garment work, they're working in restaurants, they're working in hotels, right? And these are the sort of industries that are kind of emerging after uh, the war, right? During the period of, you know, Dai Mai, which is, you know, the period of renovation, the opening up of market. And like many other developing countries, right? Vietnam is trying to follow this sort of model of export processing, uh, a model of like a certain model of tourism right um. And, you know, they're trying to rebuild the country and the city in these kind of image of these like sort of global Asian cities, right? And, you know, um, what I say in the book is like, well, all of that isn't done by magic, it's done by people. And a lot of it was being done by women, right? Um, so men were involved in all these sort of developing schemes, right? <laughs> you know, um, and it was really the women who were doing the garment work who were, you know, working in restaurants, working in hotels, um, and they were getting a certain amount of money, right? For the first time, right? Um, And using for the first time, some of that money to care for their own bodies. At the same time that places like Helix were emerging as spaces of female entrepreneurialism, right? So the Vietnam, the Vietnamese state was really pushing a kind of entrepreneurial model that really was about retaining sort of like gender practices, right? So they wanted all kinds of economic transformation, but they didn't want a lot of cultural transformation, right? Women still had to be women, right? Um, And, you know, these kinds of spas were these sort of like perfect models of entrepreneurialism, but also, you know, uh, appropriate forms of femininity, supposedly, right? So- these sort of spas exist and they've actually only proliferated since I've done field work, right? And so more and more of them, right, um, are are developing. And a lot of them are also, you know, then go on to like work in spas and salons in the U.S. and Europe, right? Um, and so these women are coming in because for the first time they have some money, right Um, they have some modest disposable income right Um, and for the first time they're spending it on caring for their own bodies or caring for the bodies of their children right and they're being sent there because there actually isn't that many other places of care right Um, and so you know i say that there's a kind of a practice of making do here right where women are having to work together to take care of themselves in the absence of other forms of care, which doesn't diminish the kinds of knowledge and practices that I'm seeing observed, but it's not like they don't want actual medical care sometimes. Right. Even as they're, you know, they're practical, you know, uh, where they can help themselves outside of medicine, they will, but when they need medicine, they're not averse to medicine. Right. But there's a kind of a practice of making do here that is about like in the absence of other kinds of care. Right. These are the spaces where they're going to. And this is, you know, in the context of for the very first time having access to disposable income and having access to some of the consumer goods um um are really driving people to these places
1: fascinating i think so for cultural scholars it's quite common to build this connection between consumption practices in post-socialist contexts to subjectivity shaping but what i think you you are very innovative and a creative in your book is you also brought care and uh, neutral care among women into discussion so basically you add an additional dimension of analysis to an, analyze to understand uh co- consumption practices in post-socialist contact it's not only about um, the newly the newly built uh, subjectivity but also seeking for real care among different individuals in a In a context of precarity and uncertainty, so it's beautifully, um, you know, it's very beautiful analysis. And let's talk about some theoretical uh, argument in your book. So you mentioned several times in the book that the skin has memories. History leaves traces on our skin and it's hard to erase these traces. How can you understand the embodied memories of skin? (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I used the quote from Jay Prosser that it's the phenomenological function of skin to record, right? And and I begin there because I I think that kind of formulation that I borrow from him is, was very eye-opening for me, right? We can tell so much about a person by looking at their skin, right? I mean, you can tell their age maybe, you can tell many many things, right? Um and not not because it's so parent, right? But because they lead us to wonder about what the marks on the body are revealing, right? So what is a wrinkle, right? What is a scar? You know, what is, you know, what is flakiness telling you, right? And I think that for me, um, because it is the phenomenological function of skin to record, I begin there to be like, oh, that is one of its jobs. It records what happens to us over time. Right. Um, and then I've uh, even more metaphorically, right. To think about like, so if it is a function of skin to record. It's recording what happens to us during our lifetime. Right. But also how is it recording what's happening to us that we've inherited right from previous lifetimes, right? And that I think was the 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 part that I really leaned into, right? How would we understand that? Like that stuff that's less visible, but surely there. Right. And for me, when I hear women talking about like flakiness on their skin as a sign of something or as a marker of something, you know, that is when I start to think about, like, we are actually um, recording not just our own lifetime. Right. (laughs) But past lifetimes in, in our bodies. Right. And it really is a project of learning how to read how to read those 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 signs, right? How to find those material traces. And one of the things that I learned through ethnographic work is like actually many people are very acute at doing that. And you know, to go back to your 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 point about gender, one of the the arguments I make in the book is like, when these men of science are reading skin, they're looking at skin, they have a particular way of reading it. You know, they're interested in how to control it and how to extract from it. Right. When these women are looking at it, you know, one of the things that I that was a a very surprising kind of aha moment for me is like they're actually not super interested in causality and cure. Right. (laughs) You know, um, a lot of times science is trying to figure out like the cause of something to produce the cure for it, right? Their sort of epistemology is a little bit different. They're really trying to understand the whole person, right? They're trying to actually understand, like, what is it that these people, these women are carrying, right? And how to remediate and ameliorate, right? When they cannot cure. And they didn't have the same investment or faith right? At first I was like, oh, so they're here using this stuff because they think it's going to make it better. But actually when you talk to them, that's actually not true. They hope it gets better. Uh, But the end goal isn't always that. It's about this kind of remediation. It's about feeling cared for, right? Um, And I think that's, to me, I think that is a, in heart, the kind of gender difference that I notice, right? You know, skin isn't a problem to solve. It's a record of a kind of a past that people are tra- struggling to understand, right? Um, and that's different uh, from the men of science. And that's exactly, that's how I came to understand what skin records skin is the kind of carrier right <laughs> of kind of histories um that really that you know that really we wear and part of the struggle in the spa is really to understand that entire
1: history rather to than to just pinpoint a cause and a cure excellent and when i read your book about your theoretical analysis of skin memory and embodied memory of the skin. I'm thinking about tattoo because as an anthropology student, I'm thinking about how important tattoo was in our ancestors' uh, religious life and also how important tattoo is in today's subcultural groups to mark something, to mark some memory and also how it important was for the early modern state to mark people's crime. So basically I think it's an excellent topic worth more discussion and worth more exploration in subsequent study. It's excellent and I think you provide A very good starting point. So, also, as far as I can see, metaphor is a recurring motif of the book uh, in your analysis of the scheme. So, official propaganda uses metaphors, scientifics they also use metaphors, and scholars they also use metaphors. And your informants they are good, they are really genius masters of metaphors when talking about the scheme. So, can you give us? S- some examples um, about how your informants, how your interlocutors use metaphors when talking about skin.
0: Um, there are so many examples you know, when they they, they talk about um, they talk about skin. I think for me, what really struck me in general is the ways in which they would say so much without saying. right? Um, You know, and sometimes that was a very strategic, you know, there's moments in the book where I say, what you think, you know, you think it's going to help her for us to say, you know, that she might've been exposed, right? She probably already knows, or she doesn't care, or, right, that I guess, you know, the metaphor for me is actually the silence, right? The silence itself was the metaphor. Um, But, you know, I love that question you just posed about the ways the metaphors function, right? In all these different spaces. I think one of the things that is very, very um, interesting in thinking about, you know, uh, toxicity or in thinking about these questions of environmental harm um, is that they're very hard to perceive, Right. And they're very, very hard to pinpoint. And they're very because they're ever changing. They interact with different fields and different environments. They drift in a particular way. They last. They interact. Right. Um, But it's very, very hard to perceive. And to me metaphors are the ways that we express an attunement with something that is very very hard to perceive and very very hard to describe right and i think for these women you know they have many many ways of saying um you know that maybe you've been exposed without saying and i think for me it's really the silences that function as the metaphor itself
1: i mean it's an it's an excellent answer about how metaphor could be part of the metaphor how silence could be part of the metaphor of people i can totally understand and i totally agree with you so in the last chapter, you provide us with a creative interpretation of contemporary Vietnamese women's consumption for their skin. Your interpretation offers a framework that goes beyond simple dichotomy and treats uh, research participants as real social actors. I just want to quote from the end of the book. You mentioned neither freedom nor coercion captures fully what the women at Pelex were endeavouring to For here, was a word absolutely shaped by Albert Kliegman's work, but also outside of his research, outside of his reach and beyond his capacity to see. So this quote touches me so much. So could you please explain what you are trying to convey through the sentence oh, and why do you think it is necessary for us to go beyond the mode of thinking of dichotomy and you know, the opposite between A and B? Yeah,
0: I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the literature on consumption says, you know, consumption changes subjectivity, right? It enables certain kinds of agency, but it's also, you know, um, you know, it's also sort of Uh, determined by certain forms of capitalist coercion, for instance, right? Certain demands to perform certain kinds of subjectivity, even as it opens up new forms of agency and subjectivity. And I think that's all very true. Um, But I think for me, you know, at some point, I realized that it's true that nothing is outside of capital, Right, there's no place where capital doesn't reach, but that doesn't mean that isn't anything outside of this kind of like consent and coercion model, right? And I think that for me, you know, there is so much beyond our sort of U.S. Western um, perspective, right? That isn't that just can't be captured by it. Right. And I think that these are the kind of traces of, um, you know, of like, you know, scholars talk about like autonomous zones or like, you know, usable paths. And to me, this is about that. It's about like recognizing the ways in which people are never outside of structures of domination. Right. Are never outside of capital, never outside of all of that. And yet still. Right, that they construct and build lives in the crevices of the possibilities. Right, um, and I think that's how, like, I end the book thinking about that. It's like I want us to look back and see all the losses, all the ways in which you know this history and these men and right have produced these violent conditions um, and produce so much loss. Right, and I also want us to be there and think about all the possibilities, right? And that time doesn't doesn't end, right? History doesn't stop, right? And I think that's why um, skin is such a wonderful uh, organ to think with for me because. I, it does help us to see how history lives on, but it also forces us to reckon with the ways that history is always changing. Like we're always changing, right? Um, and, you know, there isn't a point where um, domination wins entirely, right and that's I think that's that's where I end the book. It's like I don't look at these women and not see their suffering or not see the constraints that they're living under, but I definitely don't look at these women and think like, you know there is no future for them. they are building lives and they are constructing sort of um, practices of care and remediation um, that are absolutely
1: meaningful and that can't be captured thank you so much and i'm really glad that she when, when when analyzing your interlocutors behavior and practices you didn't use the concept of resistance but you treated it in a more complicated and intertwining way to to help us realize how your interlocutors encounter and deal with the uncertainty and the hysterical contingencies in us in their life and you also leave us think about how cultural scholar and academic academic in general should deal with and accept or embrace this kind of hysterical contingency in our research practices so this is what i think your book could read could be read in an alternative way rather than Uh, merely a history of skin but also it's about how to embrace and how to analyze hysterical contingency and uncertainty in our research so as we are approaching the end of today's podcast the last question will be what are you working on now and what is your plan for your future research projects
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, I have to say, I love the way you just put that about historical contingency and uncertainty. And I think in some ways, you don't know what your book's about until it's done. Right. But I think, you know, for me, that's the lesson that I took away from my own work, which is to, you know, that these women modeled for me a way of dealing with contingency and uncertainty, not to give up hope, not to fall into despair, Mm -hmm. not to, uh, not to, in the words of Lauren Berlant, you know, uh, uh, participate only in cruel optimism, right? (laughs) Uh, But to actually live in the space of the contingent and then the uncertain right and um so the new project I'm th- I'm working on really takes off from there it's thinking about like questions of contingency and uncertainty um in 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 particularly in relationship to chemical um, inheritances right and I've gone back and done some interviews with uh, women who are working in this um uh, electric vehicle factory, which is also opening a fac a site in the US. It's a Vietnam Vietnamese car company um, that uh, produces electric vehicles. And so I've been talking to these women who have been working in these kinds of like highly toxic forms of production and like thinking about how they think about it um, and how they manage the kinds of uncertainties of, you know, development, right? Um, And also the like legacies of the past, right? And one of the things that I found interesting in my initial um, interviews that I did last summer in the Hanoi area is that, you know, this factory is located in Haiphong, which is You know, if you know anything about the history of Vietnam, it's, you know, where the French really bombed them. And then the Vietnamese, I mean, the U.S. really, it's like, you know, it's like one of those bombed places on Earth, actually. And, um, you know, and now it's an industrial center. And, you know, it's interesting to me that the young people who I interview who don't have any really relationship to this history, actually, and who actually don't talk about it much in any other context will say to me that they're worried about getting cancer because of the dirty water there and i say is it because of the manufacturing and they say well no it's because of what the us and the v- and the french did and to me it's a really interesting um I guess, hermeneutic to think with, like the chemical as a hermeneutic, right? It's like, what does it allow you to talk about and not talk about, right? Um, And so I've been doing that kind of work with these women, but I have to confess that the real story is really about my father and who, uh, you know, worked in a factory in the U.S. and died shortly after he um, retired. And he worked for the U.S., uh, army. He was a physician. And then we came to the U S and he died of leukemia, um, very shortly and very young. Um, and you know, it's for me just, uh, it's an, it's an excavation into like what really happened to my father. Right. <laughs> and how do we understand, you know, the kind of biomedical, um, Um, histories that we carry, right, even as we struggle to narrate it because it's so profoundly uncertain, right? And so for me, it's like exploring these sites of uncertainty and trying to follow the ways that people talk about it, right, Um, as a way of thinking through, um, again, history, right, as a problem of uncertain presence.
1: Right. Your description is so beautiful. And I can't wait to see where this journey will bring you to. So I definitely believe your next book will be as excellent as (laughs) experiments in skin. Definitely. So Professor Tu, thank you so much for coming to our today's podcast. Thank
0: you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: It's totally my pleasure to have this today's conversation. So, in this podcast, we've discussed Professor Tu's most recent monograph, Experiments in Skin Race and Beauty in the Shadows of Vietnam, published by Duke University Press in 2021. This book offers an extensive chronicle of how Vietnam's chemical world was documented on the skin and also shows us how cultural scholars can intellectually benefit from a closer look at the skin and this embodied memory of the skin and also people's practices around the human body. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology channel of New Books Network, and we will see you next time.